the incomparable podcast number 70 december 2011 welcome back to the incomparable podcast i'm glenn fleischman and i'm slipping into the blue suede shoes of jason snell this week to host our first geeky nerdy music episode Back in September 2010, we did talk about soundtracks. This was in episode four, but this is the first time we're talking about bands, songs, earworms, our favorite music, that kind of thing. And there's a lot to talk about, so this will likely be the first of several over the next millennia podcasts we do on the subject of music. We certainly can't fit everything in. There's there's an explosion, a nerd extravaganza of uh, music designed for those of you who are listening to this podcast so joining me tonight is our regular host, subjected to my mockery, this time Jason Snell. I miss, Hello, the, I miss the regular host. What happened oh, to him? What's wrong? Is he in rehab again? No, he's <laughs> been locked into a closet. Oh. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for hosting. Uh, thank you. Also joining us is Lex Friedman, who is a friend of the podcast, last on in episode 41 so long ago on Back to the Future, and he was also a silent guest for episode 22. Stephen Fry does not appear, which we here at the podcast call the podcast that must never be repeated. <laughs> well, um, I hope to continue that trend of making unrepeatable podcasts with you. It's also called Glenn's Folly, but that's informal. There are and so many podcasts that are called Glenn's Folly. Oh. That's pretty much most of the time that's edited out of podcasts is in fact called that, I believe. That's Jason's Folly because he's doing the editing. And finally, we've got Scott McNulty. Oh, Scott. Scott. Oh, oh Glenn. You've challenged my supremacy as host for this episode, so we'll be fighting it out now. Now you'll pay, or you'll help out. Thanks, Scott. Hello, Scott. Uh, I, I like Jason's less hostile introductions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you would. You would. Well, so what are we talking about tonight, gentlemen? We are talking about geeky music, and uh, I remember listening late at night when I was a, a lad to Dr. Demento and geeky music back, you know, 300 years ago. Oh yeah, thirty years ago was um, was you know was Doctor Demento stuff. It was novelty records, and it was you know Billy Mummy's uh, fish head song, and uh, you know things like that. Uh, the coming to take me away, and it was novelty stuff. It wasn't um, you know, things that were for geeks were things that had inside jokes about Star Trek or Doctor Who. Strange they still do, but uh, nobody. It wasn't mainstream culture then. It was all meant for people who were sort of. Stuck away uh, listening to Dr. Demento late at night and recording them on their eight, you know, their reel-to-reel or Glenn, cassette tapes. Glenn, did you ever appear on Dr. Demento? Did you ever call in and, and have your request not. played on the air? You know, that's an amazing thing. I did not. Well, I, I, did I, not. I, I in fact, <gasps> did. Oh. Yes. That's cool. That's super cool. Yeah. Point. Super cool. I would like yeah. to go on the record as saying I had a song played on the Dr. Oh. Demento radio show. Hmm. Wait, oh. a song you created? A song I created was played on the Dr. Demento show. Oh, my God. This is a great secret exposed. You know, I had a king and Lex has an ace. Wow. I'm sorry about that. My song was Hooked on Phonics. It was a parody of uh, Ironic by Alanis Morissette with the music done by a person I had met through the internet while I was in junior high school. And I have no idea who that person was or who generated that music for me at the time. Wow. That's hilarious. That's awesome. Well, we are obviously fully qualified then. Um I got introduced to Dr. Mento by a um, by an incredibly geeky theater friend, so I was like double or triple geeky there, uh, an older woman who was involved in theater, and she introduced me to Dr. Demento, the show, not the person, and, uh, you know, I listened for years, and at some point I was like, you know, it's sort of, 
it never gets any different. It's sort of always the same kind of jokey, slightly childish stuff. And I loved a lot of it was on there, and some of it I still listen to. But I think that was sort of a a place where that all uh, collected. It's where Weird Al Yankovic made his first uh, appearance. If I remember right, he played uh, uh, Doctor Demento played Weird Al first before <laughs> he. Ahead. Glenn, this, there. this story ends with you having dinner with Dr. Demento. I swear it? to God, I've never, <laughs> never, I have no connection with anything to do okay. with him. But, so, but Dr. Demento. So I bring him up because I think he's kind of the point that people think about when they think about geeky music, they think about the novelty stuff. But, you know, now it's um, uh, something happened maybe in the 1980s where uh, Fred Schneider, I mean, maybe I'm being ridiculous here, but I think the B-52s, they're not geeky per se. I wouldn't bring them up in this podcast as an example of like geeky or nerdy uh, music. Not exactly, but it was weird. It was strange, and it hit the mainstream. And around the same time, I think that's when uh, They Might Be Giants started up in about 1982. And we're going to spend the first half of the podcast, or the first portion, talking about They May Be Giants because they are sort of the the ur-nerd band. They talked about nerdy, weird things, history and science and surrealism, and they were incredibly clever in their lyrics. They're sort of, you know, like as clever as Elvis Costello, if Elvis Costello did novelty-style songs. Uh, and they, for a while, became almost popular. It was an accident, as I recall at the time. I remember... Um, it was all a misunderstanding. Well, that's what that's it right. seemed like, because they weren't trying to write pop music, but they're really terrific songwriters. And they wrote some music that apparently was just mainstream enough, like, uh, what was the big... was Don't Let Start. Wasn't that one of the big ones? I think it was, wasn't it I Flood Bert, with Birdhouse and Your Soul? Yeah, Birdhouse, right. uh, they, soul. they signed, they they signed on to Electra. Yeah, they signed it, on to Electra. And Particle Man. And Particle, Particle Man, yeah. Man. Uh, They yes. signed on to Electra Records. MTV started playing uh, something. Constantinople was on a TV show on one of the kids' shows, I think. Tiny Tunes. Tiny Tunes. Mm. Which was listened to by stoners, or watched mostly by stoners, I think, as well or, as or kids. children. Children. <laughs> Is there stoner. a difference? You were a child? I was a, a stoner child. I was told you were born fully grown. That's why my mother doesn't return my calls. So they might be giants. Didn't maintain no, this popularity for that long. They there was a great line. I found the New Yorker profile of them from 2002, and it said they returned to a more consistent, if moderate, popularity. And I think that's sort of the case. Like everyone at a certain level knows who they might be. Giants are, and they started doing children's music more than a decade ago. But they're almost a 30 year old band, and. Um, I, I wonder, maybe each of you have a have a how did you come to They Might Be Giants story or some kind of experience where, because I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong, this is kind of the first band like that that came across your path. Who would like to start? Well, I, I'll start. Uh, as, a, as a Dr. Demento listener, of course, yes, I was inculcated in all of that, but that was something, at least in my life, and it, I get the impression in a lot of people's lives, that's something you listen to between the ages of, you know, 10 and and 14 and then you move and then you move on or in lex's case he continues probably to this day but most of us move on anyway um they might be giants i had a friend uh who i worked with in the mid 90s um uh jim bradbury who was the editor of mac user magazine at the time and he basically loaned me his copy of john henry which um is Actually, a great album, and I, I I don't know whether this is thought by by more people who listen to They Might Be Giants, but it strikes me as like the overlooked and forgotten album in that it doesn't have what feels like a super big hit single on it, but I love 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 that entire album, and I listened to that thing. I I you know I gave Jim his CD back and bought my own CD of that and listened to it 
endlessly. It's the one with the kids and the skull and on mm-hmm. the album art and it, it says we hate they might be giants on the banner that's being held <laughs> by children. And it's got some, you know, some crazy songs like AKA Driver and uh and Dirt Bike and The End of the Tour and uh Snail Shell and Subliminal which they played in the show that I just saw with them. And I thought that was really cool because for some reason I feel like John Henry is this album that nobody, maybe because at the time it didn't seem like anybody had ever heard of them. And I felt like I discovered this band that had this crazy album. And then it opened up and I bought all, all their other albums and have continued to do so. But um, it was just a friend who thought that I would like it. And boy, you know, full credit to Jim, who has excellent taste in music, and he and I share a lot of likes of power pop bands and things like that, that he, he zeroed in on They Might Be Giants and Let Me Borrow John Henry, and uh, the rest is history. Which John Henry is also my favorite They Might Be Giants album, but really? when it came out, it was a controversy amongst hardcore They Might Be Giants nerds. Indeed. Because it's, it was a full band, yeah, right? Because it's a full yeah, band, yeah. and so everyone was like, this is outrageous, what are you doing to us? Where's the accordion? Exactly. <laughs> I will never listen to this. Well, you can't say where's the accordion on, on John Henry. The very first track yeah, opens I know. with the accordion. It's with a hard rock accordion, I know, but still. Um, where's the synthesizer? Funny. I had no, right, I had no idea. Where's the drum machine? Uh, that's true. That was the first that I had, I had experienced that They Might Be Giants. So for me, it was perfectly natural, and I thought that was an awesome album. So I'm glad you like it too, Scott. I do. So Scott, what's your, what's your, what's your story? What's your story, man? Uh, so when I was a kid, I was not really interested in music for whatever reason. Uh, so the music I grew up listening to was the music that my mother listened to, which happened to be, uh, for those who lived in the New York area at the same time, it was uh, CBS FM. They play your favorite oldies, CBS FM. Huh. Uh, so I, the music of my childhood is like from fifties and the sixties, uh, which I thought apparently because I lived in like a time bubble was current music. And then I went to my friend's house, and he put on Flood uh, in a cassette, and it blew my mind. I was like, "What? This is not doo-wop? What is going on?" <laughs> These men—they are singing with their voices in a different fashion. It's true. So then, uh, that was birds and things. The first I heard of them, and and I—they have bec- they were my favorite band ever since. And uh, that's my story. That's Stick a good story. It. I used to listen to SBC FM, which played your least favorite oldies. I don't know oh. why they're on the air, but huh. they had I, I grew up. It's funny you say that. I grew up with my parents weren't that into music. My dad actually is from the pre-rock and roll era, so he has no no connection to actual modern music at all. My mom was a high school student in the 50s, so she kind of got it. And But the station they listened to was like this weird AM station in San Francisco that played, like the Giants baseball games were on there, and there were like guys doing funny vo- voices and comedy sketches, and then adult contemporary songs. <laughs> so I have a No, KNBR, before it became an all-sports station, and I have an encyclopedic knowledge of some of the worst music of the 1970s oh, and wow. early oh. 80s because... You know, Starland Vocal Band, Afternoon Delight, woo, boy. I know that one backward and forward. It took me until – it was it was until I was in high school before I realized all of these songs that I thought were great were actually by one band called The Beatles. I knew who, I knew the songs but had no knowledge of – so, so I, I, I hear what you're saying, Scott. It's, it's strange. Well, they Might Be Giants is a little bit of the graduation band. It's one of the first bands where you claim it if you're of the right age, which apparently is from – roughly in your 30s to roughly in your 40s, is it's the band that you go like, oh, that's the band 
that is of my time, even if it's weird. You know, I was in college in 1990 when Flood came out, and I totally missed it, and I have no idea how that happened. That was when they were popular. You probably disregarded them as no, um, no. It was on no? college campus. It was the perfect place. I have no idea. My, I feel like my college underground music uh, store let me down by not saying my- son. Buy this <laughs> flood thing. Buy this now. My wife saw Elvis Costello in college. This is a slight digression, but it was at that same time he was touring. And the first half, he did this thing where he sort of did a lot of the you know, favorites and whatever. And kind of wasn't that – it was a fine show. And then everybody left. And the people who stayed, he sort of got rid of all the frat boys. He brought up the great wheel of songs, and he would spin it and play whatever came up. You know, people come up and spin his entire discography. It was wow. just that kind of time. It's like people actually enjoyed going to colleges and playing to, you know, it's, I mean, now it's all, not that it wasn't commercial then, but they weren't making much money then. So it was a whole different time. But it was also a time when you could have, like, they might be giants and all these groups that, even if they were relatively popular, they would go to the college campuses, they'd get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people out, they'd fill up the, you know, the uh, football stadiums or the, the auditorium or whatever. And it was, um, it was a fun time. Go on now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, Glenn. You're thinking... Wait a minute. I still don't know how Lex got introduced to They Might Be Giants. Yeah, I wasn't exactly thinking mm-hmm. that, but now you, you mentioned I am curious. Could you tell us, enlighten us? By, by virtue and benefit of my uh, age, I was introduced to They Might Be Giants at a much younger age than, for example, Jason. My first cassette of They Might Be Giants was actually an illegally dubbed copy. This was early <gasps> file sharing, folks. An illegally dubbed copy. That my sister, I have two sisters, my older sister, um, who was five years older than I am, had gotten this tape from a friend in school. So I got a dub of Abby's dub, and one side of the tape was Flood, and the other side of the tape was the self-titled debut They Might Be Giants album. And uh, I just, I wore it out. I listened to that tape over and over again so much so that I literally wore out the tape. And uh, so, Wait, you're it, saying there was media that existed that you could wear out over time by using it? It is true. And, and so I, the, the, what's true for me in my fandom of any kind of entertainment source, whether it's TV shows or books or music, is that whatever music or TV or whatever I like, I, I have to like obsessively. And I, I become a completist. So the first musician that I really loved, as Jason already alluded to, was Weird Al Yankovic. And um, you know, what I think separates – and we'll get to Weird Al again a little bit later perhaps. But what I think separates – they might be giants, and even Weird Al is not just you know, especially in the They Might Be Giants. It's not just the the topics they sing about and the fact that you know it's the They Might Be Giants, especially, are not going for humor in most of their music, but it's the the fact that what separates them is that they take the musicianship, the music part of it, just as seriously as they take the lyrics. And I think to me that's you know so there's you can listen to they're coming to take me away and you can think well there's some funny lines in there and you can listen to a lot of the stuff that Doctor Mento plays and feel that way but much of it is not re-listenable because the musicality just isn't there and I think that's where they might be giants really set themselves apart and I think even when I was you know I don't know 1990 was when I got the tape 1991 so I was 11 um, even at 11 years old I was appreciative of the fact that this was something you could listen to over and over again and it didn't wear out its welcome it just wore out the tape itself. I think you bring up a great point. Is I think that was the uh, that was the difference between they might be giants and maybe other. No, I, mean, I shouldn't say there's a lot of novelty acts where they actually were pretty fine musicians, but they really were trying to be silly or infantile or should it get a rise. They're trying to do something that was viral back in the you know 60s, 70s, 80s when people were exchanging tapes and they could sell 45s in record stores and the whole thing. Like they're hoping to get like I'm going to get a grandma got run over by a reindeer thing and sell a million copies over Christmas and that's how I'm going to make my money. 
And and that was a different thing than these guys building richly layered music, um, even with just the two of them and you know some uh, drum set or drum uh, 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 synthesizer and other stuff. They uh, they can sing in so many different styles. It's kind of like like Weird Al, and I don't think I, I felt like I didn't realize this with Weird Al until much later, very late in his career. Uh, the two guys, John Flansburg and John Linnell, the Johns who front the band. Um, they could have been pop stars, I think, if they wanted to in some way. Like, I think they wrote songs that sound practically like the Beatles. I mean, they're not as fine and refined or whatever. They're not quite as catchy, but they could have chosen a different route than this one. And this is the one that their music and interest led them to, is to be, you know, super geeky and funny. Um, and also, you know, to like, uh, was it John Linnell has that side project? Was it the 50 States? I'd never listened to all those songs. State songs. State yes. songs, yeah. Yep. His side effort. Oh, and I haven't told. So, perhaps you're interested where I learned about they might be giants. Maybe not. Oh yes, Glenn. Oh, oh, <laughs> yes. Well, you tell us. I was deferring. So I was I was uh, 100 years old in 1986, and uh, no, I'm sorry, I was in college in 19. 19- the late 80s and did you get, mine, get their first album on a wax cylinder it was oh. it melted thomas edison me. delivered it himself <laughs> right. he said let me play you on my victrolioma this marvelous new recording by these gentlemen they must be giants they were they must be giants at the time they were just average height so uh a friend of mine who is the most um interesting person i'd probably ever met in college he later became an editor of the uh, at the village voice and wrote a fascinating novel that i think uh called Personal Days that uh, reflects everything I knew about him in college. He's like, hey, I bet you'd like this group. They're called They May Be Giants. And I was like, I like the name. Just I like the name to start with. I'd seen the George C. Scott film, which is very peculiar. And he takes me to some record store with, with actual vinyl recordings. And we purchased such an item. And that was it. I believe I did buy their first album. I think it was, they may already have had, uh, a Lincoln might already have been out, but I believe I bought... The very first, they might be giants, and um, self-titled album. Uh, but then that was great. And when Flood came out, I remember it coming out and going, "Oh, this is so much. It's better produced. It's richer. It's like it's a bigger thing, but the same thing." And then Apollo eighteen, which I felt narratively became something quite different, a lot less silly. Um, there was like there was a narrative continuity in the songs. They made sense for once. But anyway, so I feel like uh, I didn't discover them, but I certainly was turned on to them really early on, and I've got this you know twenty five year history with them now but they don't know me a bit i haven't met jason i've never met them either okay fair i have enough. no connection to them whatsoever it, it's funny that um it came up the idea that they went, chose to go another direction and not be pure sort of like straightforward pop but have this kind of quirky element i feel like um it, so john henry was controversial but i um, their next album, Factory Showroom, I felt like verged on being a completely straight mainstream rock album. Not quite, but so close that I felt like I expected their album after that to just be a regular rock album. And instead, what happened is they went back to being crazier and geekier and nerdier. They went the other way. It was like, you know, no, no, this song is too straightforward. We can't have that. We need to step it back a notch. I, I just want to weigh in there, Jason. I, I believe, because you and I have had this conversation, uh, that Factory Showroom is is uh, another one of your favorite They Might Be Giants albums. Yes. But um, it's so funny to me to hear you say that you thought that that one was their, you know, more mainstream rock effort. I mean, I think there are some some real hard rock songs, you know, hard is not necessarily the right action, but there's some, you know, real intense rock songs like Till My Head Falls Off There. But when you think about tracks like 
exquisite dead guy or metal detector XTC versus adamant or james k polk or i can hear you which are you know make up half this album now i don't feel like in any sense you could say this is a rock album many of these tracks are performance pieces yeah but is pet name not about as straightforward as they've ever been and new york city is that not about as straightforward as they've ever done well new york city is a cover it is a cover you know they they do love doing the covers, and I I I agree with you there. But you know, pet name, I think. I mean, I love pet name, and it's I would you know we can get into this too. But I, I happen to I, I end up being more of a Linnell song fan than a Flansburg song fan. Yeah, if too. I list my favorites, it's, it always leans Linnell. But uh, cracking the favorites list from Flansburg is always going to be pet name, and I don't think it's straightforward. I mean, I think that you know musically, sonically, maybe it's a little bit straightforward, but lyrically, it's it's not a pop song that you can listen to on the radio and say I know exactly what's happening in this song. It gets especially as the verses progress and we get into Cat's Cradle and Origami, it's very, uh, I think, subtle. Isn't Leading Linnell your tribute band name? (laughs) Yes. Or it is now. All right. Um, I lean John Henry. (laughs) I lean John Henry. You know, I'm going to tell you, honestly, I couldn't tell you which, uh, I I never look at those credits for these guys, whether it's Flansburg or Linnell. I know there's different kinds of songs Well, it's like who sings it, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. well, sort of, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, too, is they have, like, um, my, actually, my favorite they might be giants memory is not seeing them live, which I saw, I think I've only seen them once at the Showbox in Seattle, a classic venue mm-hmm. where the smoke is so thick. It was in the, the still could smoking clubs days that I almost couldn't see them on the stage from across a very small <laughs> space, <laughs> but they were terrific. They're actually such good performers live that it, I was slightly disappointed as I was hoping they would be more spontaneous, but they're very tight and they, they delivered. Um, but my favorite memory is watching them when uh, Apollo 18 came out they were on the Jay Leno show, and they performed with one of my favorite singers, uh, Sid Straw, um, the tall, strange woman who was on Adventures of Pete and Pete, um, just a terrific, fascinating singer with an interesting voice. And she sang, um, they sang The Lion Sleeps Tonight, Silver Spaceship, and, uh, which is a weird song in any The guitar. Any the guitar. What's that? Oh, the, the guitar. guitar. I'm sorry. It's called right. The Guitar, Glenn. It's called... Uh, <laughs> who let him host this podcast? As it's a clerical say, error. I don't know who wrote any of the songs. I don't know what this band <laughs> is about. You don't know the names of the songs. Perfect host. Singing the Your guitar. favorite memory is not seeing them live. <laughs> <laughs> but I had I'll, lunch with their producer. I'll, I'll get you. I'll get you, McNulty. So, they, uh, so they're performing the song, and it was slightly out of tune, because, you know, the monitors don't always work. Uh, in studios, you see Saturday Night Live, it's off tune, whatever. So they sing this song, and they go over to Leno, and he's looking at them like, who the hell booked these guys? I don't know what the hell. So and he says, so, uh, you guys like sports? <laughs> and it was like, if it had been Letterman, that would have been funny, but Leno just had no, they just sat there and sort of seared at each other and made desultory conversation until Leno could signal for a commercial. But it was like, he did not get them one bit. Not, and no surprise. Color me surprised, yeah. Exactly. But they were booked because they were popular. At that exact moment in time, they were popular enough to be considered and then booked on the Jay Leno show. Whatever it was called at the time. The Tonight Show, perhaps? I don't know. The show Jay Leno shouldn't host, yeah. starring Jay Leno. Yes, whatever show it was, it was the wrong I, show. I believe it was the Conan O'Brien show featuring exactly. Jay Leno. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have – it's not guilt, but there's a tiny sense of shame for me in even participating in this podcast only because I feel like, especially in my even younger years, uh, They Might Be Giants helped me develop 
what was probably my worst habit as a, a friend who wanted to share music, which was I was that guy when I wanted to play, you know, the, the newest, greatest, they might be Giants track from whatever the new album was for friends who were perhaps less fond or less familiar with the band. I was the guy who said, no, you got, you got to listen. Just listen to this next lyric. You know, just listen, listen to what happens here. You know, because to me, you know, for some songs, when you're listening to the Beatles, whom, you know, they might be Giants themselves have cited as a, as a strong influence, I guess, every decent band has always but a good influence you, to can, have. you can hear it though you can hear the beatles in the lyrics and the oh you, you certainly can but so when you think about a song great. like i want to hold your hand i think you're okay by verse two if you check out a little bit and just start you know appreciating the sound and aren't paying attention but when you're in the they might be giant song you want to pay attention at least i want to pay attention to what's happening lyrically when verse two comes around and whatever else comes around because th- there are no wasted words and everything they're singing is important uh to that song and so i was, I was like you know you got you got to be quiet I had listened to you know, standing in my car where they tore down the garage. Wait for the next line to make room for the torn down garage. Like I, so, <laughs> just needlessly obsessing over each individual lyric. I feel uh, I do, and I I feel a little bit of shame about. Well, you know, I want to ask you guys. I think I made this comment. I did make this comment earlier. I haven't forgotten yet. Which is that I, you know the first couple albums, uh, the, the eponymous album, eponymous debut album, and. Lincoln um, were really, I wouldn't say they were nonsense songs, but the songs had less intentional meaning in them, should we say. They were a little more like almost stream of consciousness, um, you know, just things, it wasn't stream of consciousness, more like subconscious thinking, like that thing when you're half asleep. (laughs) Unconscious thinking. Unconscious. It's like you're half asleep and these things connect like... um, uh, you know, purple toupee or Cowtown. You know, going down to Cowtown, the cows are friends with me. They live beneath the ocean. They live beneath the sea. Of course, the cows do. Right? It just things like you're almost you're just nodding off to sleep, and it makes sense then. And then youth I culture think, killed my dog, and I don't yeah, think I it's love fair. That. They'll need to shoehorn with teeth. You know, I want to shoehorn strapped onto my teeth. It's just <laughs> <laughs> I want to apologize to our they may be Giants the fans listeners who are who are so upset at Glenn's butchering of the lyrics of this these songs. Wait, what am I saying? So you sing it. What is it? Every everything you've I every lyric you've quoted today has been in the kind with teeth. People should get what beat up stating their beliefs. Very good. Or the monster service version skating like the Leafs. Oh my gosh. I did not realize how hard this job was, Jason, until <laughs> I took it on. I don't and want the world, Glenn. I just want my half. Dude. So from I'm just you know, from now on I'm just gonna make up the lyrics. Memo to myself. <laughs> do the dumb things, <laughs> the I, things gotta do. I gotta do. Host the podcast. Play with puppets. <laughs> I think that's how it goes. Would you mind Something if I wrote like in green magic marker on the back of your head right now, Jason? Because, you know. Uh, so between They Might Be Giants, eponymous debut, and Lincoln, yes. with Flood, they got into more narrative stuff, and I think Apollo 18 even more. So there's actually like a. They're telling a story. I mean, there's stories in the first two albums, but I think they didn't become like true contained storytellers until later. Apollo 18 is famous for, uh, you know, annoying people who shuffle. Because there, uh, there is that too, absolutely. Fingertips, which makes absolutely no sense, but is my favorite part of Apollo 18. Mm-hmm. You, you're saying that fingertips, the song, makes no sense. I, I think it makes little sense. See, you know, I'm going to talk out of two sides of my mouth, which is a parlor trick I learned. You know, I think that there is two tracks at once. Okay, the, the, you know, there's a tendency, and this part of one of my, you know, when 
my early internet time was spent on forums either discussing Weird Al or They Might Be Giants. And, you know, there was this tendency then and still now to to analyze every They Might Be Giants song and go for what's the interpretation, what's really happening here. And I think that probably, in my mind at least, that starts because of their first, I think one of their first major singles, Birdhouse in Your Soul, whose lyrics are not, it's not obvious to many listeners who like the song what it's about if they don't spend the time to actually look or really pay strict attention to the lyrics. So then every song of theirs gets overanalyzed. And, you know, you have They Might Be Giants saying, you know, most of the time we don't have deeper meaning. You know, when people are wondering about this lyric, it's because it fit the song nicely there or it rhymed or it had the right oh, number right, of syllables. There's a, there's a different thing between it, the song having to make some coherent sense that you can decode and there being a story in the song. And I think oh, oh, sure. the story was a very small story, like Boat of Car is a great, I love Boat of Car, but it's like, it's almost indecipherable what the story is. And they're sort of using language to not tell the story, but to tell you there is a story there. I think that's fair. Then you get into Flood and then Apollo 18, I think even more so. And there's, there is an actual narrative they're telling within many, not all of the songs where it paints, a, you know, it's, it's a world they create briefly and then destroy no, I think that's fair. But I would just say, even though I think that it's easy to overanalyze They Might Be Giant songs, that I feel that Fingertips actually does tell a story. Well, you didn't pick that as your favorite song, so you don't get to talk about it anymore. That's fine. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> because I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting you off, Friedman, because um, we talked in this episode, when we were planning this episode, about to have a little more focus. We're each picking a song that we like, and we'll talk about it. And um, Lex, I want you to go first, because I just cut you off. And Lex, you picked... The Mesopotamians, unless I'm pronouncing that wrong. No, you nailed it. <laughs> you know, to, to me, the what reason album I... Is it, what album is it from, or is it on multiple sure. albums? The, the Mesopotamians on the is on The Else. That's exactly right. 2007. Released in 2007. Somebody has done their homework, Glenn Fleischman. Oh. Somebody has Somebody. Wikipedia really open in front of them. Yeah. Sadly, Wikipedia doesn't include lyrics. <laughs> you don't even need Wikipedia. You just need TMBW, This Might Be a Wiki, which That's is true. the oh. veritable source for They Might Be Giants wiki information. That's, right. That's where the real fans go. TMBW.net. You've got your lyrics, your interpretations, your song facts, analysis, and all that. But uh, So the Mesopotamians I like on 800 levels, and I think that <laughs> the, the reason I picked it for this, this podcast, hour podcast. <laughs> the reason I picked it for this podcast is because I truly think, I mean, it is of their non-children focused songs. It has to rank in the top 10 nerdiest. They might be giant songs. It works on a lot of levels. First, you've got the, the historical level. You know, he's Linnell who wrote and sings the song, you know, is talking about the, the Mesopotamia and he's citing Sargon, Hammurabi, Ashurbanipal and Gilgamesh who very rarely feature, I think, in popular music. Uh, I can't name uh, many other songs with Ashurbanipal specifically. Yes, but uh, so you've got that element, and you've got a very strange. As the, the when you listen to the song, you've got a very strange sort of temporal anomaly happening in the song because they're clearly living in Mesopotamia in the time of Mesopotamia, yet they're driving around in their Econoline van as they tour from town to town in their band. Uh, so you've got all that happening, which I think is interesting, and then you've got this. No, first the, the the band has a sort of there's discontent within the band at one point where, uh, you know, he's not going to share his gum with one of the members of the band because he said his haircut was poor, and then you've got a whole Beatles Paul is dead reference where they're singing you know I thought that you were dead I thought you crashed your car and he's no man I've been right here this whole time playing bass guitar and it's 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 a, I mean the song is bizarre there is no other band that could ever have written that song I don't think you can say that about every day might be giant song but I'm confident about it with the Mesopotamians and I you know it's it's also I think just musically very interesting and it's 
<laughs> starting, I think, around, I don't know, 2004, 2005, John Linnell started writing songs more often that didn't require, in his mind, a standard verse-chorus, verse-chorus, verse-chorus pattern. And, you know, when you listen to Mesopotamians, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, a crazy construct that's weaving in and out of all sorts of different sections. But when you, if you pay stricter attention to it, it's, it's very crazy the way all that works together. And there isn't a standard verse-chorus pattern at all. And I don't know. It's, I think it's musically great. I think it's lyrically great. And it's, it's, I love it. Let's pretend to listen to a little bit of it, of it right now. going to pick scott next scott you picked one of the my favorite songs i almost picked it but you did so i'm letting you have it exquisite dead guy what album yes. is that from rotating in his display case what it is, is from factory showroom is it not yes it, it is. is it is all right uh, for Correct. a moment i thought i had turned into glenn <laughs> we, at one point i think we were all picking songs from factory showroom so <laughs> much so that glenn, glenn kicked i picked one too and glenn kicked me out and forced oh, me to choose something else 1996 well, yeah factory showroom. showroom is a very strong album um it, is. And it has many fantastic songs on it i think exquisite dead guy is the best they might be giant song on that album uh, because it is kind of odd. <laughs> um, it is short. It has very few lyrics. It's very catchy. It makes you think, who is this exquisite dead guy? Are they talking about, uh, you know, Lennon or Jesus? McCartney. Or, or McCartney. Or uh, are they just talking about the uh, exquisite corpse writing game? Who knows? Beautiful harmony. Beautiful harmony in that song. It's true. And it, they mention a sky hook, which I'm not sure what it is, but I like it. Uh, Didn't you picture the, I pictured the exquisite dead guy like sort of being flown under a helicopter from a skyhook. It's always my image. He's just being suspended, rotating, flying through the sky under a helicopter. No, not not everyone's opinion apparently. That that could be it. I don't know. I don't know what a skyhook <laughs> is. We could all have our. I don't know what it is. Exactly. This is a, the, the beauty of the song. Is it's so short and yet so many possibilities. And there's very little instrumentation. It's mostly just uh, like I think there's a bass and maybe a little bit of very subtle drums, but it's mostly just them singing. Well, well you get the harp and the organ going into the let's, bridge too. The bridge is what makes the song for me. Let's pretend to listen to the bridge right now. How am I supposed to let you know the way I feel about you? Ba 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 
And there we go. That was good. All right. So now, Scott, continue. Pray continue. Uh, that's it. I, I'm a man of simple explanation. <laughs> well, the song's only two minutes long. How much can it's you... It's true. I, I don't want to explain and talk about it for longer than the actual song is. That's... Well, apparently you don't have that problem that they have with Star Wars, so... <laughs> oh! Let's talk well, about I, Exquisite Dead Guy all night. Well, I, I mean, if, if you wanted to talk for an extra minute about Exquisite Dead Guy, it's one of the they might, be songs, they might Be Giant songs that I put in that category of... It's, it's a set piece. It's a performance art song. Uh, in a way that you know some other songs in the library are, and that doesn't make it better or worse. But I feel like there are some, and I think I'm in the minority opinion here because I think you all three of you really love this song, whereas I merely like it. Um, you know, there are sure. songs that you can rock out to, and you can just say, "I'm going to put this on," and whether I'm paying attention or not, it's going to make my day better by virtue of my listening to it. But "Exquisite Dead Guy" to me isn't a song that one rocks out to or veggies out to. It's a song that you experience each time it is played because it's, it's like it's theater in a song. I agree with that, actually. It's it's not... I, I wouldn't... Uh, although Scott is a handsome man, I would not pick this oh. as my... Uh, close to my favorite from that album, which some of my favorite songs are on. But it's funny, and I enjoy it, and I recall my wife and I singing along to it in the car every yeah, time see, it played, and... Uh, it's just fun. Yeah, it, 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 it's a singable It invites song. interaction. There's something... Well, it's, it's... I think it's that we don't know what a skyhook is, we don't know what's going on, but it's all intriguing. <laughs> It's, and it sounds good, and it's it's catchy, and I can dance I to it. I swear I saw his mouth move. So uh, I'm going to take the next hook before I give it to Jason, which is another song from Factory, Factory Showroom, Showroom. Oh. because it's it's so darn catchy. And this song is, I'm going to double-check the title in order to not be ridiculed. <laughs> the bells as, are ringing, right? It, uh, it's uh, called, James oh, I Madison. Thought was, I thought it was called Flossing tw- Twice Daily, but it is in fact called The Bells Are Ringing. Great uh, song. Fantastic song. And um, so yes. the reason I've always I've always liked this song, and sometimes when I just need like to get something out of my head, I'll play this song because I feel it's so catchy. It will chase other earworms away. And uh, it's it's a uh, you know this song is well. Let's listen to a little bit of it first. And so there's that great, there's this recurring thing. It's uh, Exquisite Dead Guy has the, has the, a repeating thing. And, and the bells are ringing has the bong, 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 bong. But so I like the bells are ringing because it, it, the first time I heard it, I'm like, I've seen that science fiction movie. It it tells almost the entire structure. It's like, is it an alien invasion? People's minds are taken over. There's a little tension. The, the girl, you know, this one woman. It's this says, um, a girl with cotton in her ear is shielded. 
this beautifully written little concise thing. It's as if someone said, okay, tell me an entire story about an event in, you know, uh, 40 words, kind of a Twitter style competition. Um, well, it's, it's basically Invasion of the Body Snatchers, except instead of aliens, it's consumerism and mm-hmm. holiday holiday consumerism specifically, which for this time of year seems appropriate. It is one of my favorite kind of oddball Christmas songs in a way because it, it, to me that's exactly what it is is you can't you cannot escape it it, it, it will get you talk to me more about that Jason because I hear it, I think of the song as being about mind control but I don't think of it as being about consumerism so where do you get the consumerism from well, well one of the great things about the Mighty Giants is they try to do um, rhythmically rich interesting things they do you know syncopation they do um, oh, what do you call that effect where you it, is it, it's not syncopation it's a call and response thing we have like bop 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 you got two sets of voices working in alternation. There is a musical term for it, but I do not recall. Uh, the, in Kachok singing, they use it in um, Indonesia. Anyway, so but they do wow. all this stuff that's very well. It's very uh, often um, when they when they want to, they can be rhythmically complex, harmonically complex. They pull uh, things from world music, uh, some of which sound very obscure. They'll use really bizarre instruments. When I saw them live, they're like, and the glockenspiel, and they bring up, will you play the glockenspiel? I forget this whole bit with a guy that comes out and goes, ding, and then he goes away with the glockenspiel. It's like that one note sh- joke. And, shoehorn. Um, exactly, right. And he will play the glockenspiel. So they, they like to uh, play with instruments, they like to play with that, and I think this song, it's um, there's aspects of minimalist music in it because you have a repetitive theme that's used as the underlying component that's supposed to bring you in, and I think it's part of the whole musicality they bring, but it's just fun. I like listening to it like singing along to it. Okay, so Lex, here's my answer to you about the bells are ringing, which is Please. it is my interpretation of it. I feel that the bells themselves are are I've interpreted that as being kind of holiday-like bells and I feel like what they're what the people are doing is is shopping, is is buying things. It's um it, that's what the people miss. Um, the, you know, they're trying to fulfill themselves, and I, I. So that's how I've always read it. As as that's it, interesting. As, as a Christmas, as a Christmas song, where Christmas bells and the compulsion to go out and uh, buy things at Christmas is what what's happening. The nice thing for me is that your interpretation can coexist very kindly with mine. So I, it's and it's I mean it is mind control, but I, right. I view it as being through the reflection of sort of consumerism. I, I also like the science fictiony part of it. If you think about it as pure sci-fi, where where they didn't have aliens come down and their giant bodies take over us. It's it's bells. There's no explanation. They don't have to tell a story. It's one of the great things about, I think, music in general is that you can tell a story in such short strokes because the, the music itself is supposed to make up. It helps us paint the picture in our head. And, and that kind of thing. It's like the bells ring. It's like, okay, oral, I don't care. I don't even know the details. You got me. God, that uh, drum cadence at the outro, too, is so great. have one more contestant yes. dr worm jason you like dr worm which is also i would have to say one of my many thousands of favorites of their songs dr worm is from which album uh dr worm is the i think only studio track on severe tire damage one of the only studio tracks on severe tire damage 
Correct. What, wow. What's the other, the severe tire damage theme? Is that what you're thinking? Well, there's the severe tire damage theme, but there's also uh, About Me. A, a, ver- a, a oh, very the, weird and bizarre At, at the very song. end, yeah. right. Okay, it's the yeah. only decent uh, <laughs> studio song. I on, will accept that, yes. On the live album, Ooh. Severe Tire Damage, where they stick a studio track on the front of it in order to sell it to people who might not want, otherwise buy a... Uh, uh, they might be Giants live album, um, and so it's it's track one, and it's actually a good album, and there's some uh, good uh, rare rare ish stuff on there that I like uh, in the in the live stuff too. But um, and this is truly horrible. And this stuff appears because because although my favorite my favorite I think bar none they might be Giants song is Metal Detector, and the geeky song that I wanted to talk about is Spiraling Shape, also from Factory Showroom. Um, Glenn has instructed me to talk about Dr. Worm. Dr. Worm is great this because it is, it is nerdy, but it's uh, music nerdy. And I think one of the interesting things about um, They Might Be Giants, there are a lot of musicians who are, who are, are, are geeky, but they're music geeks because they're musicians, right? And They Might Be Giants does both and has sort of strange stories about um, you know strange people or things about science or science fiction-y kind of concepts. Dr. Worm is none of those. Dr. Worm is about a, a, a deluded drummer. Um, or a, a, an up and coming drummer. He's invented a stage name, and he's very enthusiastic about it. They, he says, "Call me Doctor Worm." Uh, good morning. How are you? I'm Doctor Worm. He gets to rehearse sort of who who he is under his stage name, and the rest of the story is essentially how much he loves playing the drums, and he wants you to come in. And I've le- I've left the door unlocked because I can't hear the doorbell. I'm playing the drums so loud. Come and tell me if you think I'm getting better with my with my drum playing and it's just it's it's very fast and it's got the big horns and it, and he's Dr. Worm is very enthusiastic and um just some of the turns of phrase like um both my kids as they've been growing up will occasionally be focused on something very very peculiar and and minute that they'll focus on an intense detail because they're children and they're trying to learn about it and my wife and I will just say to each other he's interested in things because that's the line in Doctor Worm. He's interested in things. I'm interested not, in things. I'm not a real doctor, a real but I doctor. am a real he's an worm. actual worm. Yeah. They call me Doctor Worm. Good morning. How are you? I'm Doctor Worm. I'm interested in things. I'm not a real doctor, but I. So it's silly, and yet it's got that. Uh, the, the it's got a a protagonist who is has this intense focus and is very enthusiastic about something. And you get the sense that maybe he's not very good at it, but he's very enthusiastic about it. And that's why I that's why I put that on my list of they might be giant songs because I, I I like what it says that they're writing you know they're, they're writing a song about a, a character like that who's got that intense enthusiastic focus on something. Right, you never know if it's misguided or not. You assume it is, but there's aspects of it that make you think maybe it's not. Maybe it's a striving 
Right. Thing. He certainly put the cart before the horse in choosing his stage name while he's still <laughs> practicing how to play. And as somebody who, who once roomed with a, a guy with a drum set, I, I can... There's a one side of a Led Zeppelin album that I know the entire drum part to. Not the album itself. I hear the album and I get sweaty because I know the drum part. But um, So I know what it's like to be around a, a, a drummer who's enthusiastic. But, um, but uh, yeah, I assume he's not... He's not great because he's asking if I, he's getting better, and he, but yet he's still chosen his stage name. Have you seen them perform that song live ever, Jason? I have. In fact, I saw them perform it uh, just a few weeks ago. It's it's become a real concert staple, I think, because it's such a great stinking song. But it, it, and the fa- the pace of it too. I love how fast and and peppy it is. It's they great. play fast. Their live albums and when they appear live, they play. They may be fast. Yeah, they must but be so, fast. <laughs> I always, you know. I've seen them play that song with with some horns, and I've seen them play that song where there's no horns. And yep. When there's no horns, it's it's weaker. You know, it's Linnell using his keyboard Synth to horns, synthesize yeah. some trumpet sounds, and it's kind of better with the horns. I agree. I've seen it both ways. But what I love about it is the lyrical uh, improvisation might be too strong, but the lyrical liberties they take with that song, both jobs when they perform it live. You know, I've seen especially there's that, there's that spoken interlude in the song. You know, well, it's it's sung in the song a cappella in the recording but then in live very often Linnell will start speaking there you know uh, call me Dr. Worm uh, I'm not a real doctor I'm interested in stuff and he, you know just as he starts you know uh, playing with that I really enjoy it and well he says he, sometimes but I, my point here oh Glenn, my is that live he, <laughs> he, he mucks changes, with the lyrics he changes he the lyrics and then they, they do that even better is at the end of the song, you know, they're supposed to just sing, you know, Dr. Worm is the is the last lyric of the song sung and perhaps harmonized on. But very frequently I have found Flan- – because I've seen them live at least two dozen times. Flansbury really? will sing extra background lyrics like, you know, I'm interested in things, which is not – does not actually <laughs> appear in the original recording at the end of the song. And that always just kills me. You have seen them two dozen times? Uh, at least, yes. That's uh, astonishing. Oh, uh, as have I. I've seen them really? twice. Yeah, I've seen them once. Well, I got a rock, so we should move on from this, which is a great topic. Lightning round? Lightning Are we round. doing the lightning round now? Yes, if you guess wrong, you're shocked by lightning. That's how we play this oh. game. That's uh, how I like it. That's <laughs> how we I like, like it. element of danger. Uh, so, Jason, why don't you go first? Since you've taken up the mantle, we were going to talk about some other nerdy albums. There's so many. I mean, this is one of the things where we have to do... Uh, Multiple podcasts on it is we've talked about um, we talked about Paul and Storm we talked about Jonathan Colton we t- mentioned Weird Al Yankovic and we will come back to him in a moment but there are we could do entire podcasts about some of these folks because they have such huge ears their discographies are enormous um, but you want to talk about Fountains of Wayne which I would say Jason I didn't think initially I was like I don't think of them exactly as a nerdy band and I mentioned this to my dad and it is so nerdy my dad listens to it so there you go so there you go there you go if your dad listens to it but so you. You picked a song. Your song you picked. Yeah. I, I, so I went through a whole list of, of bands and um, uh, different ways of, you know, are there, is it a band of nerds, but they write straightforward pop songs? Is it people who write about nerds? Is it people who write nerdy things? I, you know, there are lots of ways to define it. Um, and I went with Fountains of Wayne, which is a power pop band, and I love them, and they're one of my favorite bands of all time. Um because the songs they write, they they there's a whole, I'd say about a third of the songs they write are these character songs. They're they're about these characters who are not the kind of people you usually have uh, 
you usually see in songs. They usually have songs written about them, and they're sad sacks, and they've got their obsessions, and they've got their their interests that are are kind of outsidery in a way that makes me feel like that's why I wanted to bring them up. Is that that I I feel like they they kind of reflect something about the the geek experience or the outsider experience, and um and there are lots to choose from. I know your dad mentioned Hackensack, which is a fantastic song. It's also on also, my, uh, my my creepy stalkers playlist. Stacy's mom. He really likes Stacy's mom, which is a very very peculiar the, song. Yeah, and a little bit that that could Another be conceived of as being of, a little nerdy too and a little yeah. stalkery. But yeah. the song that I picked is a song called Leave the Biker, which is from their first album, which is the self-titled Fountains of Wayne, which I think came out in like 96, something like that. Mid nineties. Let me check Fountains of Wiki. Let me check Fountains of right, Wiki. Yes, fair, please do. Oh. Please you're you're in New Jersey, Lex, so you are the home this is the home team for you. I'm assuming there's a wiki owl for Weird Alice. Yes, well, of course. <laughs> um it's the Alpedia. So um, oh. the uh so it's from the first album. And uh what I love about Leave the Biker is Leave the Biker structurally is is just um, it's not like other songs because it's not a love song. It's and, it, and it's not a breakup song. We know those from pop music. Leave the Biker, the protagonist in Leave the Biker doesn't want the girl. Although he likes the girl, the girl is every man's dream. And he doesn't have the girl because he can't get the girl. She's with the biker. She's with the biker. So oh. there's this beautiful woman with the biker. And the biker is big and mean and drunk Horrible. and homophobic and sl- a slob, and this beautiful woman is with him. So all the protagonist really wants, he doesn't want the girl. He doesn't want to ride off into the sunset with the girl. All he wants with his body and soul is he focuses his like hate beam on the bar and the biker <laughs> and the girl who are at the bar. He just wants the girl to leave the biker and break his heart so that he can feel pain because he deserves it because he's a jerk. And that there's something about that 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 story and that feeling of like, look, I'm not going to get her. She's beautiful. She's every man's dream. I just want him to feel a little bit of the pain that I feel in my life. And if that doesn't say something about the kind of geek experience, I don't know what does. So Leave the Biker is my choice. I love <laughs> awesome. Leave the Biker. Let's listen to a little bit of that to give people a flavor. Seems the further from town I go, the more I hate this place. He's got leather and big tattoos, scars all over his face. And I wonder if he ever has cried, cause he couldn't get a date for the prom. He's got his arm around every man's dream, and crumbs in his beard from the seafood special. Oh, can't you see my world is falling apart? Baby, please leave the biker, leave the biker. His heart, baby, please leave the biker, leave the biker, break his heart, break his heart. Let's do Scott next. Scott, you picked an interesting band, Moxie Furvis, <laughs> or, or, or Moxie Fruvis to the Fruvis. It's got an umlaut. I'm going to use it. Oh well, I had what? a nickel. If you get a so they, for every umlaut, for every umlaut. They, you can take the dots from above the U and put them on McCudy. top of your eyes if you want. Purvis. Um, you picked this band. Please tell us something about this band, of which I knew nothing, which is why you must tell us. I am not surprised. Uh, so, <laughs> Moxie Fruvis hails from Canada. Uh, they are kind of, well, they've, they've broken up, sadly, but uh, they were a pop folk kind of uh, weird band, I suppose. Um, 
they had uh, their first album, which wasn't their demo, but they had a demo, and that, that led to their first album, Bargainville, which uh, has a number of fantastic songs on it. Uh, the one I picked as my favorite is uh, My Baby Loves a Bunch of Authors, in which uh, it chronicles the relationship between a man who wants to go out dancing uh, and his baby wants to stay home and read all kinds of fiction. Uh, and you know they go through counseling, and he uh, hurts himself and goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, I'll, I'll be with you as soon as I'm finished reading my book. And he's very frustrated by this whole culture of people reading. Uh, but finally, they go to a party, uh, but it's an author's night, and so there are a bunch of authors there, hence the name of the song, and they, they sing about uh, uh, a, f- a number of authors, many Canadian, uh, and I like this song because it mentions Robertson Davies, which made me go read everything that Robertson Davies wrote, uh, and he's a fantastic Canadian author, so check him out. Uh, also dead, but he, he has a giant beard, so there's a, a joke about that in the song. my story reading baby you should hear the things that she says she says hun drop dead i'd rather go to bed with gabriel garcia marquez cuddle up with william s burroughs leave on the light for bell hooks i've been flirting with pierre burton because he's so smart in his books i like to go out dancing my baby loves a bunch of authors my heart's so broken bleeding baby's just sitting there doing some reading uh, so, uh, Moxie Fruvis, a uh, fantastic, good time, uh, kind of upbeat band with uh, lots of great songs. And I have seen them many times. I mean, I won't see them ever again since, uh, since I don't think they'll be coming back together. But if they do, I will go to the reunion concert. Scott, since we both lived in Pennsylvania simultaneously for a while, did you ever see them in King of Prussia? Uh, were, were they playing in a gazebo? Yes. I oh was at God. that concert. We yeah. were at the same show, Scott. <laughs> that is amazing. When you stepped on that punk kid and told him to get lost, that was Lex! Yeah. It was me <gasps> standing in the face of. Actually, you were both simultaneously punks, kids, so, you know. <laughs> you damn kids, get off my lawn. Get off my get gazebo. Of- exactly. What are you doing in my gazebo? That was a great Singing concert. They, uh, they joked that it was the start of their gazebo tour, which I always found quite amusing. <laughs> I don't really understand why they were playing in a gazebo, but I went. It was fantastic. If you have the opportunity, you do it, is my thinking. It's true. Uh, Lex, we leave you for last. I don't have another pick at this point. I decided instead of making the podcast insanely long, I would defer, but next time. Oh, next uh, time but since you don't know anything about geeky music. Apparently, I know nothing about oh. geeky music. I've never listened. I don't actually know how a phonograph record works. So, As, as my fellow panelists know, this was this, – this, and I think this is true for all of us, but this decision was, you know – a very difficult one. I was overwrought making this call because I, I love so many geek bands. I would in fact venture to say that there are very few bands I like that wouldn't qualify as nerdy bands of some sort. But I did go at Jason's strong urging with uh, Alfred Matthew Yankovic, better known by his stage name, Weird Al. Uh, and, you know, we, I, my first introduction to Weird Al that I remember was far from his first album. You know, 1983, he has got uh, his album in 3D with uh, Eat It on it. But, I, you know, I was three. So I didn't really get into him for, for several years until he next parodied Michael Jackson, which was uh, 
his parody, Fat. And I saw, I had known the Michael Jackson song, Bad, and then um, a friend says, you've got to check out this video. And he didn't show it to me on YouTube because it didn't exist yet, but we waited for it to show up on MTV and we watched. You had to wait, had to wait for Chad Hurley to invent YouTube in order to like right. that. Right? It, took, it took years. No, we, so we watched this fat music video and I'm, I'm hysterical. I think it's hysterical. I'm cracking up. I cannot keep myself together. And I'm thinking to myself, and this, I, I can admit this to all of you because we're very close. But you know, for a moment I sat there thinking, that was good. That's funny. I wonder why he didn't make a song called Good because that seemed to me at the moment to be a better parody of a song called Bad and it could have been about somebody who's really good. And it, t- it took a couple more I – I don't know if it was months or years till my sense of appreciation for parody could really mature a bit more than that. But you know, the song that I have picked from Weird Al – I think uh, is, is certainly his nerdy song. It's the song White and Nerdy, a parody of a not hugely popular rap song by a guy named Chamillionaire called Ryden. The chorus of that song is trying to catch me riding dirty. And in Al's version of the song, he's actually, I think, singing close to in the first person as himself, which he doesn't usually do. But he's saying, you know, he's having a hard time hanging out with the gangsters because they recognize that he is simply too white and nerdy. Now, Al really qualifies, I think, as a nerdy musician in many ways, especially because he himself is exceedingly nerdy. You know, he graduated from high school as a valedictorian at age 16. Uh, he, he had an architecture major that he was pursuing at Caltech. Cal Poly University and you know he, he got that degree and was thinking that was the job he was going to go into but for all of his songs that he writes he, he talks about the incredible homework that he puts into them. I know people who write funny songs and they take 20 minutes and he takes you know weeks to put together many of his songs with notebooks you know he did a, a YouTube parody that was about dentistry and he's researching all sorts of dental terms and you know talking to dentists and getting books from the library he talked though that for white and nerdy he said that was one song I didn't need to do any extra preparation for is the one I was preparing for my entire life. <laughs> now he's he's actually a a, a remarkably accomplished uh, musician and 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 songwriter. Um, pe- people who only know him from his parodies. I mean, most of his albums have original songs. He he wrote a he did a song that is still very funny, but is not a specific parody of one thing called Velvet Elvis, which is one of my favorites. It is a it is every police song ever condensed into a single song 
And he calls those style parodies. It's amazing. It's just mm-hmm. amazing. And then he also does his polka medleys on every oh, album, yeah. which awesome. which my daughter apparently told me about just the other day that she ju- she discovered and one of her teachers played one of them and she thought it was hilarious because she recognized the modern songs. And I said, oh, honey, he was doing that when, when I was your age to which she said wow he's really old but um but i love that the, the polka medleys are insane too the the rolling stones hot rocks polka, hot rocks polka. is insane it's so you know he's more than just uh just those song parodies and his song parodies are are artfully done but um he's got a lot of other uh very clever uh very well written stuff that he does beyond just uh so he does have musical people accuse him of not having any musical invention at all and just being a, clearly a lyricist and it's not true Oh yeah, he's also of all of his, his albums are, are original songs, yeah. and you know I think it's it's hard well, sometimes to get a sense of you know which no, I'm saying, no all of his albums are a mix of of parodies and original songs. So half of each album ha- is original music. Yeah, it's it's tough sometimes to know what does what would an original Al song sound like because so many of his originals are done as these pastiches, these style parodies. Um, but I think if if you're out there and you want to know what would an original Al song sound like, I think that uh, Skipper Dan on his most recent album, Alpocalypse, is a good place to look. And uh, potentially a song like Frank's 2000-inch TV off the otherwise, you know, minimal, less subpar effort uh, – uh, which is called uh, – it's got a Jurassic Park-style cover. It's called Alapalooza. Uh, uh, <laughs> see, you've almost lost your – I, I listened to Weird Al Yankovic before his name was incorporated in puns <laughs> in every one of his albums. But I, I used to play on my high school radio station. I used to play I'll Be Mellow When I'm Dead, oh, so good. which is a which is a really, uh, really nice one. And um, there's a uh, city in the, in the Central Valley um, on Interstate 5 called Kettleman City. And every time – we drive past it. My wife and I cannot help but make reference to um, the jingle for Spatula City uh, from Spatula. from UHF, the fine film starring Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, Spatula City. We sell spatulas, and that's all. This is this is the thing about uh, about Weird Al. Uh, not only is he a again another person who could have been a mainstream uh, talent, could have been a mainstream artist, and probably very successful at it maybe in a very different way and he found his niche and is the biggest person in that niche so that's you know that's something remarkable but the other thing is i didn't know until he did the american american pie i'm calling the song the wrong name again aren't i the saga begins the saga begins thank you the parody american pie parody don mclean parody um i didn't know that he was handsome no one knew, did they? I mean, he t- he had his hair head shaved, or was he wear a wig all the time? I don't know. But he had his head, so so he's got short hair. He has no crazy mustache, and he looks serious. And I watched the video, and I'm like, who is the guy doing Weird Al? Like, oh my god, he's a matinee idol. Like he's he's as beautiful as Ewan McGregor. And you're like, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating, but he's an awfully good looking guy. And I was like, how fascinating that like. Um, there's the uh, uh, Amy Sedaris, who is a beautiful woman, and in nearly every appearance she makes, with exception of like Elf, I think the movie Elf, she is always distorting her face in some way to be ugly or her appearance. And you're like, God, Weird Al. There's a lot of psychology there, I'm sure, but like he's a great singer, he's a great musician, he's handsome, and he makes himself look super goofy and sings parody songs. It's sort of fascinating. But he does it really well. Uh, by the way, I um, since Glenn mentioned that his dad has a has a song pick for Fountains of Wayne, I'll, I'll point out my uh, my father in law loves uh, Amish Paradise, by Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> which is the only time that a Coolio song will ever be brought up on. 
it's the biggest hit yeah. in concerts. That song wasn't his biggest hit of all time. wasn't his highest, you know, charting song. But that song in concerts, when he rides out, when when he comes, you know, Weird Al's concerts are sort of like shares uh, in that they have <laughs> lots of costume changes and set pieces, and you know, he'll run off stage, dancers and in hot costumes. pants. Oh no, that's part of his thing, right? Is that like he's very highly produced too? I mean, it's not a right. Cheap when he show, comes out it? in that Amish beard, though, the the people they just go crazy. That's True. hilarious. If there been... were any criticisms I could levy against Weird Al, and there are, and uh, and I can do this only because I love him, I would say that I I wish, and it's it's who he is, and it's how he does his business. I wish he were slightly less formulaic. I wish he didn't mm-hmm. feel, for example, that every con- his concerts are more like musical theater than like concerts. You know, Glenn, you mentioned it much earlier in the show that they might be giants. He found were very tight. I find them very lucid shows, which I appreciate. You know, they'll they'll improvise, they'll go off set list, and they'll mess around. Oh, that's funny. I I've, I've only seen them the one time because I was actually felt like I wasn't getting something sufficiently different than a studio recording. So obviously, I saw them in one of their tightest most atypical concerts and now i must go see them again but so al's shows are scripted even the the words he speaks into the microphone are scripted you know he's got every moment you know his jokes and beats are all scripted and and i don't like that i don't love that every single album's got to be five parodies five originals or you know four parodies and and the polka medley like you know he experimented with the polka medley on Alapalooza where he does the polka that's just one song. It's just Bohemian Rhapsody with the entire song polka-fied. Uh, but, you know, I, I wish that he could sometimes be a little bit less strict with himself in how he, he does his thing. But I guess he has a, a process that works and chooses to stick with it. So I can respect it even though I wish that he could sometimes, you know, flail a little bit more. That is awesome. That is awesome. And I think we find ourselves at the end of another beautiful, lovely evening of podcasting oh i'm sorry podcasts take place in an indeterminate period of time not evening nor morning well so this was fun and we've got you know there's so much material we've so covered much here so much jonathan colton so many, so many like we didn't even talk about pdq bach who in fact i think may have also been an inspiration he you know be another uh another uh, peter shickley who i've seen live and uh just once sadly so far and um PDQ Bach, you know, there's uh, like that's even the ur ur stuff, but uh, there's a lot more material to talk about. So perhaps on a future podcast, if we have popular requests, we'll uh, we'll come back. And I think Jonathan Colton uh, deserves his own podcast almost certainly because of his current place in the pantheon of uh, nerdy musicians and the success. And because he is so stinking awesome. Well, yeah, and the Oops. success he's found through this thing called the internet. Oh, the um, internets. In a way that, I mean, they work. might be giants and Weird Al predate it, and they've both made incredibly good use of it, I think. Well, I mean, they be giants particularly, but, um, but you know, Jonathan Colton is a different subject altogether, one for another sure. podcast. So I would like to thank our panelists this week. Thank you, Scott, for only mocking me every other time. That's great. Thank you. I do what I can. I know, I know. Well, next time you can host. Oh. Oh. And, uh, Lex, thank you for coming aboard. I will never forgive you for making me pick just one They Might Be Giant song. I know. Well, that's, you know, that's the job of the host, isn't it, Jason Snell? Thank you for being here. At least he let you choose your song. He, <laughs> he, gave, he gave me my third choice. Although I rule with I'm interested in things. Yes. Thank you. Fist. Thank you for hosting, Glenn. <laughs> You're welcome. And thank you for editing me out as the host when we let's go to the post. <laughs> well, that's the real, where the real work happens is in post-production. <laughs> that's right. You know, the, the passenger is almost ballast on this. It's really the design of the yes, box derby. The host, the host is the ballast on the great Zeppelin <laughs> that is the incomparable podcast. It is thrown overboard. So until next time, thank you, dear listener, listeners, listeners, for tuning into the incomparable, and we'll see you again soon. 
We're the Mesopotamians. Sargon, Hammurabi, Ashurbanipal, and Gilgamesh. And repeating thing. Bong, 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 bong. Son, I am able. Yeah, no, I, I, I was Man, doing it better than that. Though you scare me, watch, said I. The love that I say, watch me scare you, though, able. Said she able, and my son. Grandfather clock unwinding. What is he saying in the background? He got a bass toned in notes of bad age, which is a palindrome. 